Romans chapter 1, or excuse me, Romans chapter 3 is where we're at today, and, and our study of this chapter as we walk verse by verse through the book of Romans is going to take several weeks. Um, when you get to the middle of chapter 3, we're going to get to the good news, okay? We're going to start with the good news here in a few weeks. But you can't get to the good news until you hear the bad news. Um, you go into a doctor's office, and hopefully you don't hear the words, I've got good news and, and bad news. But if you do hear those, I think most of the time I would want to hear the bad news first, get it out of the way, and then we jump into the good news. Another way to think about this is that you cannot talk about the cure or hear the cure until you hear the diagnosis of the disease. And Paul approaches this book of Romans in much that same mind, with that same mindset of, all right, we're going to talk about the bad news. We're going to talk about the disease of sin, the disease of separation from God. We're going to talk about that, the bad news first, but then I'm going to get to the good news so as we've talked about before, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way up through chapter 3, verse 20, is really Paul sharing this bad news. We are all sinners. We are all in desperate need of God's grace and mercy and salvation. But what does that look like? Well, that's what we're going to get to here in a few weeks. But today we start chapter 3, where the first part of it is heavy still, looking at the condemnation. In Romans chapter 2, Paul addresses the religious Jews in Rome and their false security in who they were, um, in what they knew, and in what they did. We talked about this last week. They had this dangerous misconception of the gospel and of salvation. It's a work-based heresy that had to be addressed. Now, in our day, culture at large has assumed a works-based salvation as well. If you could just be good enough or do good enough, then there's no reason that God won't allow you into heaven. Oh, God, I should be in heaven based on what I have done. The problem is salvation is not based on what I have done. It's based on what Jesus has done and him alone. That's what Paul's going to get to as he continues to work through the book of Romans here. I hope that you're gaining a greater understanding of the gospel through our study of the book of Romans. Uh, Paul's building this, these building blocks of faith for us. When you come to the end of chapter 2, where we ended last week without reading any further, it's not far-fetched to wonder if Paul has a bone to pick with religion in general, specifically with Jews. Um, he's just spent a whole lot of time proving how the Old Testament law was incomplete. It, there was more that was needed. <clears throat> and if I'm a Jew in, in Rome reading this, <clears throat> excuse me, at this time, I'm wondering what is it that got into Paul? Uh, why is he being so harsh? And it's almost like Paul anticipates that response. So in the next several verses, Paul's going to address some of those imagined arguments that might come from the Jews. And he does this by asking nine different questions in the passage we read for today. So nine questions in eight verses. Let's read verses one through eight again. And um, as I read, you're going to see a lot of question marks here, okay? Take note of those as we, as we read through this. Starting in verse one of chapter three. <clears throat> Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, quoting here from Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. 
But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Did you catch all those questions? Nine questions and eight verses there. Paul knows what the Jews are likely thinking, so he kind of heads them off in their imaginary argument. Now, I really, really hope that you brought your thinking cap today, okay? Because you're going to need to think. I certainly did this week as I was working on preparing for this, because this is not an easy passage to follow. Nine questions in these verses with three main ideas, and these are the three main ideas we're going to cover as we work through this today, okay? First of all, the Jews are crucial to God's plan. They're crucial to God's plan. Secondly, God is always right and always faithful. Number three, every person must give an account for their sin. You don't have to write down all three of those right now, but I'm going to go systematically through each one, okay? Number one, uh, the Jews are crucial to God's plan. And under this main point, you can put two different subpoints. okay? The first one being Jews are God's chosen people. Paul says, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. If you were to look historically at the Jewish nation, you might wonder what value or advantage there was to being a Jew. Think about it for a moment. They were persecuted, driven out of their land over and over and over again. They would be faithful to God for a little while, and then they would be unfaithful, and their unfaithfulness would inevitably lead to heartache. Even up until recent days, the Jewish nation has been one of sorrow. Multiple attempts, even since the days of Jesus, has taken place to extinguish them completely. And they've left millions, millions of Jews dead. And we know some of those occurrences that's taken place throughout history. Even now, they continue to fight for a small strip of land, very small strip of land, right on the Mediterranean Sea. And even though they've been recognized as a sovereign state, they don't get a whole lot of help from the world at large in protecting that. You ever had one of those moments where it seems like nothing is going right, and the only thing that you can feel like you can do is just throw up your hands and say, you know what, that doesn't. Do I have any value at all? Has everything that I've worked for been for nothing? Have I come this far just to fall, or just, excuse me, just to fail, and for it all to mean nothing? After chapter 2, and the way Paul outlines so clearly for the Jews, listen, you're getting it wrong. You can imagine them looking at their Hebrew Old Testaments and saying, what in the world am I to do with this? That's why he's addressing this. What advantage has the Jew What's the value of circumcision? Paul responds, much in every way. Yes, you have value. There's no reason to assume there's no value there because God himself has given that value. Of course there's value there. Don't forget that you are God's chosen people. There's a wave, a, a, really a new wave of anti-Semitism that's, pop, that's popping up all over the world right now. Um, it's wrong, and first and foremost, it's wrong because every single human being has intrinsic value that's given to them by God, first. But secondly, it's wrong because the Jews are still God's chosen people. There's nothing that has negated that. 
Here's a second subpoint under this first point, and that is that Jews are the mouthpiece of God. And Paul here gives an example of the value and the advantage of being a Jew. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, he uses those words to begin with there um, as if there's multiple examples, but he really only uses one. Paul's got an ADD moment here, okay? First of all, he says, or to begin with, um, but he doesn't go any further with secondly or anything like that. Now, this is not the only time Paul does this. In fact, he does it here in, um, in the book of Romans another time. I think he does it over in 1 Corinthians as well, where he says something like first or, or first of all, and then there's never a second or a third. So don't read into that too much because let's face it, we do the same thing. And you'll notice me doing the same thing sometimes. Um, I think I've got several things to say when I start a thought, but then I forget what those might have been. <laughs> And instead of it being more, it's just, all right, let's go with this one thought. Well, that's what, that's what Paul does here. It's an example. It's one example. Paul's saying, here's one way we see the advantage of the Jewish nation. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The creator of every living thing that is in existence chose to reveal himself through the Jews. The revelation of who he is and what he planned to do and of his redemptive nature is revealed through the Jews. And it's found in God's Word. Traditional belief is that every one of the 66 books of the Bible was written by a Jew, with the possible exception of Luke, who was a Gentile but was likely a Hellenized Jew. That means that God spoke his Word into existence. What we have today is in existence through the Jewish nation, through Jews as a whole. We would not have the word of God apart from the Jews. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. God's people were entrusted with the oracles of God. Think about that for a moment. Think about the significance of that. In in recent years, there's been a couple of different movements within Christianity to discount parts of the Bible, uh, particularly the Old Testament. The thought is that God is somehow done with parts of the Bible and he's moved on to other parts of the Bible. Several years ago, there was a prominent pastor who encouraged his church to unhitch their wagon from the Old Testament and focus solely on the New Testament. In other words, discount that and focus solely on the New Testament. And he backtracked that pretty quickly, but then in recent days, he's he's gone back to that argument and saying, we need to focus solely on the New Testament rather than the Old. There's other prominent pastors and authors who have led a movement to say that any words in the Bible that are not in red should be excluded from our Bible. Their argument says that if Jesus didn't say it, it shouldn't be included. The problem is that the whole counsel of God, all the oracles of God, are important from beginning to end. And this is not a sermon necessarily on the authority of God's Word or the inerrancy of God's Word or anything like that. But this is a great opportunity to point out that all Scripture, all Scripture— is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness? Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I can imagine Paul, after finishing in chapter 2, with the Jews there in Rome, pointing at their Hebrew Old Testaments, wondering about the value of them, responding with, absolutely there is value here. Once again, I go back to what Jesus said, that he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. All of it from beginning to end is important. 
And I've been thinking about, okay, how would I respond to somebody who said that we should unhitch our wagons from the Old Testament? And this is something I've been dwelling on for the last several weeks, and it's almost like I'm taking a little bit of a, of a detour here for just a moment, okay? And I've realized that apart from the Old Testament, how would I know that I'm a sinner in desperate need of a Savior? That's the biggest thing. There's many, many reasons. But the biggest one that I've come up with, apart from the Old Testament, how would I know that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior? And I know that the New Testament tells me. I know that it tells me that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. But the Old Testament shows me the full picture. It shows me my inability to keep the law of God on my own. It shows me how much I need Jesus to be the propitiation for my sin because I can't do anything apart about my sin myself. And those stories that I learned as a kid from the Old Testament are not about how great Moses and how great David and how great um, Samson are. Those stories are about Jesus and how great my need for Jesus is. They remind me that my salvation cannot be found in my ability or my knowledge. Salvation can only be found in Jesus and in him crucified and resurrected. Don't unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. It's just as much the preserved word of God as the New Testament is. Use it to be pointed to Jesus and to his sufficiency. Now, I want to transition our thoughts and our, 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 our focus here for just the next, uh, for the next few moments to the next couple of verses, okay? Moving now to verses 3 and 4. And in this, we see that God is always right and always faithful. In verses 3 and 4, God is always right and he is always faithful. He says here, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, the crux of this section of verses, even though they're really wordy, is really simple. Even when God's people are unfaithful, God's faithfulness never, ever changes. He is always faithful. And this is where the fickleness of human beings comes into play. The Jews had everything they needed to know about God available to them through his word. There was no excuse for them to not recognize God in his redemptive work through Jesus. But for the most part, they missed it. Even deeper still, they rejected it. They rejected Jesus. Paul uses the words there, what if some were unfaithful? He's talking very specifically there about the Jews. What if some were unfaithful? And he's really lenient in his language as he's writing to these Jews in Rome. The reality is that the vast majority were unfaithful. Have you ever needed to tell somebody something and you know that they're a part of the problem, but you want to break it to them easy and not offend them right off? So you soften your words so they don't get upset, they don't get angry. That's what Paul's doing here. He says, Some were unfaithful. No, the reality is most were unfaithful. They were faithless when it comes to Jesus. Over and over again, they did not keep their promises to God. And they didn't listen to God when he promised a Messiah, when he said, here's what you need to look for. They weren't weren't faithful to God when Jesus actually came. But Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. 
Pastor Jimmy talked about it earlier. God's faithfulness will not end. He will always be faithful, no matter what. He never breaks his covenant. Now, this idea of God's faithfulness, specifically with the Jewish nation, is a theme that's going to come back up in Romans chapter 9, verses 11. In fact, that's the focus, that's the theme of, of Romans chapter 9, verses 11. In short, though, does a person's, and to quote him, he says, does a person's faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, Paul says. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. This means let God keep on being true, even though every man becomes a liar. You say, well, how in the world does every man become a liar? For this, I want you to go to um, Psalm 51, okay? Hold your place there in, in Romans chapter 3, but go to Psalm 51. Psalm 51.4 is what Paul quotes there in Romans chapter 3 when he says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But it's really helpful for us to see the whole context of what's taking place in Psalm 51. This psalm is David's prayer after he's committed the crimes of murder and adultery. This is his prayer. He starts praying in verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, Psalm 51, 1 through 4. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Get this. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Here's, here's a synopsis in, in kivet words of what David is saying. And I believe this is the point that Paul's making here as well. He's saying, God, you are the one who is true. You are the one who is righteous. You are the one who is faithful. You are the God who is unchanging. I'm the one who is wrong. I'm the one in sin. I'm the liar because I've tried to convince myself that something apart from you is more important than you. And here's something for every single one of us to remember. That in the same way that David was a sinner who was unfaithful to God, and in the same way that the nation of Israel were sinners who were unfaithful to God, in that same way you and I are sinners who are unfaithful to God. That's our story too. That's who we are as well. Every single human being is guilty of this lie, of being the liar. Because we try to think, we try to put something beyond God in place of God. We try to worship the creation rather than the creator. But God never, ever changes. He is always true. He is always righteous. He is that perfect north star that will never, ever, ever fail. That brings us to our third point here. That is that every person must give an account for their sin. Now to understand this, we're going to have to jump around these verses here, the verses remaining uh, a little bit. And I want to give you a framework first for understanding the verses because Paul is confusing in the way that he writes this. Now, those are not my words. Those are Peter's words. If you remember Peter writing of Paul and of his writing, he, he talks about how confusing Paul is sometimes. But we're going to make sense of this, okay? Hang on. Here we go. At the end of verse 5, you see the words, 
I speak in a human way. Paul says, I speak in a human way. In other words, I'm using typical human logic. I'm reasoning the way a human being might try to reason. Um, He puts this in there so that nobody would think that he's using good or righteous reasoning. It's an almost blasphemous argument that he's making here, and he's doing it to prove a point. You're going to see in just a moment. It's almost a blasphemous argument. He wants to make sure that the reader, before we go further, the reader knows this. If you miss that crucial fact about the human reasoning that Paul is using here, you will miss the meaning of the rest of what Paul has to teach here. Here's the second thing to understand. And that is that a human often thinks that as long as something good comes from something bad, then all of it is good. Um, A phrase that you might hear, it's not taken from the Bible, but a phrase that you might hear is the end justifies the means. In other words, it doesn't matter how I get to the end, if the end is a good thing, then all of it is a good thing. But that's not true because it's still sin that brought you to that good thing. The end result is important. Everything else in the middle is also important. The third thing to realize is that as we create a framework for understanding this, we've got to know that the heart of mankind is bent on justifying sin. We always want to justify ourselves. A child who's done something wrong wants to justify themselves. But I, but I, but I. An adult who's done something wrong, who has sinned, wants to justify themselves. But my upbringing, or but this or that. They want to justify themselves. So understanding those three things, let's read verses 5 through 8. Paul says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now here's how this is playing out. This is a cycle of idiotic reasoning. A person might justify their sin in this way. And man, wow, what a justification this is, okay? They might justify themselves in this, uh, in this way. I sin because when I sin, God forgives me. And when God forgives me, he gets glory for forgiving me. Therefore, my sin is justified because of the glory that God receives. When I sin, I give God a chance to show his love and his mercy and his grace. That's the argument that Paul's making here. That even some in the Jewish nation were thinking and living. I'm okay to sin because I know God's going to forgive me, and when God forgives me, he's going to get the glory for that, so a good thing comes. I got my pleasure, and God got the glory. Once again, this is idiotic human reasoning that Paul's using. It's absolutely true that God can use our sin for his glory, but never is it his will that we sin. Sin is an abomination to God no matter the intentions. Look at verse 7. He continues this. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? In other words, if God brings good for my sin, then God shouldn't judge me for my sin because of the good that came from it. 
I was an avenue for God receiving glory. He should reward me rather than judge me. Once again, one of the thought processes of the Jews of the day. God should reward me because he got glory in this. No, no, that's not how this thing works. I told you we're going to jump around. In response to this, look at verse 6, going back up to verse 6. Paul says, for then how could God judge the world? If this is the response that God has of being pleased with you for your sin and the good that came from it, then how could God judge the world? How could God righteously judge anyone if he doesn't righteously judge everyone? Everyone must answer for their sin, absolutely everyone. And the reality that Paul presents there is the one that he's going to continue to develop next week when we come back to this passage where we see that there is none who is righteous. No, not one. It's like Paul sets us up here to build next week. I want to end today with two thoughts. And if you're genuinely confused about everything that we've talked about so far, write down these two things and maybe it'll give you something, a launching point from this point. Number one, we are all unfaithful gomers. And right about there, how many of you thought of the Andy Griffith show? That's not the gomer I'm talking about. In the Old Testament book of Hosea, God had Hosea marry a woman named Gomer. Um, Gomer had a tendency, however, to go find other lovers besides Hosea. Over and over again, she kept wandering from Hosea, finding temporary joy and satisfaction in other men besides Hosea. But every single time that she would go find someone else, God would have Hosea welcome her back into their marriage. He would take her back even when she was unfaithful to him. And he did this to paint a picture for his people. That being that God is always faithful. God is always faithful. And I see this faithfulness in a couple of ways. Number one, he's faithful in his forgiveness. When we do sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But then secondly, he is faithful to never, ever, ever change, to never lower the standard, to never say, you know what, it's all right. I'll, I'll, I'll ignore your sin this time. You see, if God was unfaithful in any way to say that our sin doesn't matter, then he's just lost the right to judge us for our sin at all. We are Gomer, wandering from God and trying to replace the truth of God for a lie. We attempt to justify our sin with a crazy, silly justification, but God remains faithful. He never changes. There's going to be consequences for our sin, and they're likely going to hurt badly. Sin always brings consequences, but God is faithful to forgive us. And if there's one thing that I hope that you take away from this today, it would be that you are a sinner in no way deserving God, but he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. He is the true and better Hosea who will welcome you back with open arms in spite of your sin.
Father, we thank you and we praise you for that. We thank you and we praise you for the plan that you put in place. Lord, from the very beginning when mankind turns their back on you, you planned for our redemption through Jesus. Father, even when people do sin, you're faithful to welcome us back when we come with open, repentant hearts. Father, we know without a doubt that you are that constant that will never, ever change. And for that, you are to be praised. Lord, I pray that you take your word and that you will sharpen us and draw us close to you that, Father, the Spirit of God would show us the, any wicked way inside of us. And that, Father, we would spend our lives sold out for serving you with every part of our lives. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.